0: Good morning, I'm Megan Haugen, and our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 40, reading verses 9 through 14, talking of the greatness of God. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you join me as we pray? Father, may you open our eyes to see Jesus as he really is that we might appropriately respond to him in our lives. Would you, this morning, dismantle our preconceptions and our predispositions that really distort our perception of him and distort our perception of what life with him was to look like. And so would you help us now, in your name, amen. Well, please be seated. And good morning, my name is Taylor Reevely. It's a delight to be with you. Happy New Year, officially. All those resolutions have come and gone, so now we can get to work. Well, this morning, after a month off uh, from the book of Matthew during our Advent series in the Advent season, uh, we now return to the Gospel of Matthew. And if you remember, what we were aiming to do with this biographical uh, study of Jesus is to examine who He really is and what He really did and then do the work to piece together a real-life response to Him as He is. And this series of sermons is entitled, King Jesus, because Matthew is clearly displaying that Jesus is the long-awaited King, and He's bringing with Him now the kingdom of heaven as it is crashing into the kingdoms of earth, and He is inaugurating in that kingdom a new way of living as a fully alive human being. And we paused for Advent right at a key moment of conflict in the story of that kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew chapter 21, (laughs) Jesus, now nearing the end of his life, arrives in Jerusalem, the city which was home to the temple, the place where heaven met earth, where God dwelt amongst his people, And at his arrival in Jerusalem, you might remember the crowds surround him. They lay palm branches on the street and they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the city, it says, was greatly shaken at his presence. And straight away then Jesus goes to the temple and he cleans out the money changers. He cleans out the sellers and the buyers, all those who were there misusing the temple for their passover celebration and he claims ownership of the temple when he says my house shall be called a house of prayer and the next morning then he's out he slept outside the city he comes back the next morning and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree and what does he do to that fig tree The fig tree has leaves, and it looks like it should be full of fruit, but there is none, and he curses it and says, never again will there come fruit from you. And the fig tree withered and died. And in, in that instance is a living parable demonstrating that the house of Israel is like that tree. It had the law, it had the prophets, it had the covenants, and it had no fruit. It had no affinity, no allegiance, no affection for God, no righteous living. And so it is now that this morning we find ourselves back in the temple again. That place where heaven and earth meet. And this morning those two kingdoms crash into one another. And really you'll you'll see this morning that you cannot, we cannot, nobody can sit on the fence about who Jesus is you will either squirm or you will rejoice under his authority you will either wriggle to try to get out from under it or you will bask in it and enjoy his authority but you cannot be indifferent and you see that question that we wrestle with in the text this morning is the same question we wrestle with now 2000 years later in 21st century Oregon city we're still the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth have clashed, where we still have to reconcile who Jesus really is, not simply who we would imagine Him to be. And so, please now, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21, and follow along as I press play on verse 23, and we'll wade into this conflict this morning together. This is Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. 23, and when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, when the kingdoms come clashing, the question is always about authority. The religious leaders here then question Jesus' authority. Now, you remember, Jesus is in their house. He's in their jurisdiction, and he's caused quite a disruption. The chief priests and the elders of the people were the governors of the temple in the positions of authority over the temple. And when Jesus enters, he is not playing by their rules. And they come asking to see his credentials like a a police officer asking to see your license to drive in this city. Who has given you the right to drive your car? Who's given you that authority? And now it's probably appropriate for us to pause and say, when we use the word authority, what do we mean? Because it is a bit of a trigger word. And authority is something that is resident in an office which possesses the power to do something. At this basic level, authority is something that rests in an office. In that office is given the power to do something. It is distinct from power because whether or not that power is exercised, the authority still remains. David Koizis, in a recent interview on a podcast called City on a Hill, this, he just said of, of authority, he said, you know it when you see it. When a doctor with command of the subject walks into the room, you know it. When an when NFL commentator has played the game and, and doesn't make a million bad calls, well, you know it. He's an authority on the subject. And you recognize it. You recognize it of police officers and principals and parents and presidents, and the same here is true of Jesus. The religious leaders, they see Jesus, and they know what they see. They see somebody acting with authority, and in this, they're not wrong. You see, from the very opening of Matthew's gospel, really the the life and ministry of Jesus that Matthew's recorded, he has highlighted again and again the authority that Jesus has demonstrated, the authority these religious leaders then have seen. From his opening words in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he stands in a Moses-like manner on the mountain, (coughs) revealing a deeper interpretation of the law of God. To the moment that he comes down from that moment and then starts touching people and healing the lepers and the blind and the sick and casts out spirits and demons with but a word. To the moment he was wakened from his sleep to calm the raging seas and his disciples marvel who is it that even the wind and the waves obey him? To the time that he sends demons out of a tormented man into a herd of pigs that rush headlong into the sea. And then to the time he says to another paralytic, Get, uh, he says, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. In order to, it says, demonstrate that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, then fast forward now to, to why these displays of authority are now causing a problem. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters the temple and, in his authority, cleans house. He waltzes in and acts like it's his house, like he belongs there. And then he comes back the next day and he sits down and starts teaching in the, in the religious leader's seat with authority, and people are flocking to him. He comes to their place, does their job, and he's doing it not like they would do it, and that is a problem. I mean, to get a sense of the indignation that they would be feeling, um, I don't know, maybe someone has just walked into your house, and, and they're rearranging the furniture in your house and they're emptying the dishwasher and putting the Tupperware, God knows where, in your house. Or maybe you, you drop the kids off with an aunt and an uncle, and an aunt and uncle run more of like a boot camp daycare than like a fun daycare. And you're starting to say, what are you doing? Where, who gave you the right? And to challenge the authority, it's appropriate. Sensing then this affront, the affront of Jesus' authority, They step up then to challenge him on it without realizing perhaps the stakes of their challenge. So when they ask there in verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? They are first admitting that Jesus does have some kind of authority. But what kind of answer then are they looking for? What are they hoping he'll say? They could be hoping that he would say, meh, nobody, just a charismatic guy, people like me. In that case, they could just dismiss him, say, well, then get out of this place. You have no right to be here. And the crowd would disperse and things would go back to normal. They could be hoping that he would say, my authority comes from God. Because to claim authority from God then would be uh, blasphemy. To claim that God was uniquely present in you, to claim to be divine or have divine authority was a capital offense. And perhaps they're now hoping that they would trap him in his own truth. Because you see, they knew Jesus. He wasn't a stranger to them. His works and his words were no mystery to them. So they knew that Jesus didn't have an answer that would satisfy them. He didn't have a a certificate or a diploma from the Sanhedrin Council by which he has authority now to teach in temples. So this question seems to be a snare that regardless of Jesus' response would eliminate him from history and preserve their way of life. So, note then how Jesus responds in verse 24 with authority itself, okay, and turns their question on its head in a manner that is now typical of rabbinical debate. So, you would answer a question with a question. Jesus now answers their question with a question, and He appeals to the authority of John the Baptist. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now the context so far in Matthew's gospel has associated Jesus' authority with his works and his words, and now he brings in another associate, his witness, John. Now, why would he bring John into the equation? How are John and Jesus linked? How was the authority of John the Baptist, the authority of Jesus tied together? Now, let's do here a quick review. Uh, during our Advent series, we came across this uh, one of our ancient barren couples, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were told that they would have a child and they would name him John, and he would be the one who would herald the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. God Himself would come to dwell with His people through or following the announcement of John. Now, where does His authority come from? It comes because God spoke to Elizabeth through the angel Gabriel. His authority comes from heaven. You remember John is set apart as the one to herald Christ, but the significance of the link continues because then many of you may be reading through the New Testament uh, this year. You've completed now the first five chapters of Matthew's gospel, and already by this point John's been baptizing in the Jordan River, doing what he's supposed to be doing, doing what God has given him authority to do, announcing, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his baptism is signifying a return to God. He is announcing, you have run away from him, come back to him, he is at hand. And even as he is doing this with the authority of heaven, the scribes and Pharisees are wagging their fingers at him. This isn't how we do it. Appalled that an unauthorized user would have the controls. Disturbed that when, when God came to visit his people, he came through this schmuck from the wilderness instead of through the proper uh, people with pedigree in the temple. So when Jesus counters this question and invokes John the Baptist as the source of his authority, he's doing two things. He's identifying himself as the one that John was announcing. He is he's announcing I am the long awaited king that John foretold. You see John has already lived, John has already died. Now we are after Jesus or after John the Baptist's life and Jesus is saying I am still the one. But he draws a parallel there between the source of John's authority and the source of his authority. Because if John's authority comes from heaven, guess what John said about Jesus? Jesus' authority would come from heaven. And so if John's authority came from heaven and he spoke with the words of God, then Jesus likewise is here speaking with the authority of God. And he turns their trap question back on them. What are they going to do with this? Where did, where did John get his authority? What, what are they going to say? Now, when authority is in question, there really is only two responses. You can, in, in here, in what happens, they wrestle with those implications. There are two responses. Look, at, look with me. They discuss them both out loud in verses 25 and 26. In verse 25, it says, The baptism of John, where did it come from, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say, from heaven, then he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So here are the implications of their answers. If they say, John's authority came from heaven would mean to admit that John the Baptist was right and that they were wrong all along. And if John was right, then Jesus is in fact a long-awaited Messiah and just as he says he is, and they now have no other option but to submit to him or they would be defying God himself. And this simply cannot be. On the other hand, to say from man would mean to admit that John was wrong and that they were right all along. But the crowd that is sitting at, the temples of, uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus in the temple, you see, they love John. They believe John. They love Jesus. They believe Jesus. They recognize his authority as one from God. So there is a mob culture, a pop culture that has surrounded John and Jesus now that recognize him for who he is. And the leaders fear that a mutiny of the mob might drive them from their own house. And so in order just to keep things civil and in order and to keep their reputation among the people, they cannot say from man. So those are their options. Submit to Jesus because John's, and therefore Jesus' authority is from God, or reject Jesus because they reject John and risk the fallout of the crowd. Now here's my question. I've already kind of teed it up a little bit. Do you think that they knew the right answer? Do you think that John's witness, John's authority has been validated adequately by the man who has healed diseases and speaks a word and the wind and the waves just stop? He has demonstrated on every page unique and exclusive authority over the physical world through His healing, His command of the wind and the waves, as well as his, the supernatural world through His command of the unclean spirits and demon-possessed. Jesus has sparkled as the diamond that John held Him out to be. So I believe that they knew the right answer. They, but they knew the right answer and they reject it. They couldn't bring themselves to say it. They couldn't bring themselves to submit to the one that they had already determined to reject. You see, they really had only two options, but in their pride and in their fear, as well as their predetermination to reject Jesus, and ironically, their failure to act with authority to lead in what is true, They come up with a third option. It's brilliant. They punt. Look at verse 27. They answer Jesus, we don't know. They punt. They pass on the singular question that defined the authority of their office as the ones to lead the people until the Messiah comes. They plead ignorance on the question that will prove them to be the wisest or the most foolish among men. On the question that matters most in all of life and death. Where does the authority of John come from? We don't know. We don't know. Maybe Jesus will just tell them anyways. Maybe this plea of ignorance will just work out. It's worth a shot. Third options exist. Nope. Jesus' response in verse 27, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now here's the deal for us this morning. We, we have to wrestle with the same question. Who is Jesus? Where did he get his authority? Where did he derive the right to do and say the things he did and said? And this question, what we believe about Jesus, is the most important question. It's the chief defining question for the rest of our lives. If his authority comes from man, then he is at best a good teacher, a good man, charismatic leader, but you're free to take him or leave him. However, if his authority comes from God, then he must be dealt with on an entirely different plane. If he truly is authorized by God, that the words he spoke are God's words, then there's an offense to sit on. You can't plead ignorance, you can't punt. There's really only one option, and it is to submit to his authority and follow him. Now, throughout our time in Matthew, it's become, I hope, abundantly clear that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We made it especially clear that's what Advent and Christmas are about, is this, um, the incarnation where the fully God becomes fully man at the same time. He is the rightful, awaited king of the kingdom of heaven. He is not a demigod, not mostly God, not kind of a lesser God in a human form. He is God himself. Thus, he has the authority, that position, the office of power, in that he holds the very office of God. And this morning, Megan read a portion of Isaiah 40 uh, for you about the authority that God possesses. And she read Isaiah 40 this morning because Isaiah 40 opens with these words. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It opens with those words which are fulfilled in the herald of John the Baptist. And what follows in Isaiah 40, then, is the announcement which was heralded about God's arrival. And thus it can be said, John would have said of Jesus, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Where did his authority come from, is the question that John is asking. Or the Isaiah is asking, Isaiah 40, that John is asking then of Jesus who authorized this man? Nobody taught him justice. Nobody taught him knowledge. He's the author of justice and the author of knowledge. And he has then, Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth because he holds the office, the exclusive office of the creator of heaven and earth. Now, if that is true, then what are we going to do with Him? What are our options? We could reject Him. We could reject Him. Which is the definition of sin. Sin is rebellion or rejection against God's rule. It's to say, you can own all of creation, but you can't own me. And that is how the religious leaders are approaching Jesus with a predisposition to already reject him. And I'll just say it would be the foolish decision to make. And we would never say that, right? Instead, we might say, I would never say, I reject you. I'm going to leave the door open. There might be a higher power. There might be And instead we say, okay, yes, he can rule in my life. And maybe we'll work out some little arrangement where we kind of co-rule together. Like he gets half and I get half. Or maybe he gets uh, Sunday mornings and I get Sunday afternoons. Or maybe he gets my morning devotional time and and I can be uh, the master of what happens at breakfast. Or maybe he can be the master of my marriage. That's fine. He He will have authority there, but I will have authority then for the philosophy of parenting that I want to try out. Or maybe he'll have authority of my money, but I will have jurisdiction of my time. And when we compartmentalize Jesus, we are effectively rebelling against his rule because he is not one king among many. We sang earlier, there is none like him. He is not one among many. He is not a peer among equals. He is the exclusive authority of the universe. Now the alternative then to this full rejection or this partial rejection of his authority is to submit to him, to yield to him in everything. (laughs) To submit to Jesus means to submit to his rule yielding every part of life to him. To follow him means that you follow him on Sunday, yes, and Monday through Saturday, at home and at work, in public and in private, all the time. And I've I've just got to say how easily inclined we are. It's built into us to be averse to authority. I mean, we're sitting in Oregon City, okay? The end of the Oregon Trail. Do you know how we got here? We got here because someone promised our ancestors that there was a place where there was no law, where you could do whatever you want, where anything that you put in the dirt will grow and will produce fruit that you can eat. There's plenty of land, plenty of opportunity. It sounds appealing, doesn't it? Well, so did our ancestors. They thought it was great. So they left civilization east of the Mississippi and came west to Oregon City and built this town on the, with the DNA of anti-authoritarianism. We don't want an authority in our life. We want a fence and a garage. We want a garden that we planted and we take care of. It's built into us. But it's not just our city's DNA. You know that the United States of America was birthed out of the Revolutionary War, which was a cry against the authority of the King of England. So some of our aversion to authority then, I have to say also some of that aversion is justified. There are times when you are smarter than the person in authority or who holds the office over you. You're right to be cautious. You're right to be wary. There are times when offices of authority are abused or misused, and you're right to question. But beyond really simply this, the cultural resistance to authority that's built into our our culture, even the the way we were raised, it's built into the fabric of fallen humanity. I mean, ever since the Garden of Eden on the second page of the story, when God was with humans, showing them what life with Him was going to be like and how good it would be, humans have chosen to feast on forbidden fruit, resisting God's authority. Now, to live under God's authority... Really, this is the the story of the garden. To live under his authority is the place of blessing. It's the good life. Is to be under his authority. To reject his authority, to step out from under it, is to be removed from his presence, to suffer and die alone in everything that is broken. But the story that we all share as humans is this story, which says all of us have, in some respect great or small, rejected and resisted the authority of God in our lives. And what then is he going to do? Okay, he holds the unique office of being the creator of everything. He has all authority. What is he going to do with those humans who have rebelled against him? What should he do? How is he going to use his authority As we close, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 10. Because I want to show you, I want to show you how Jesus uses the authority that He has toward those who have resisted Him. So only a few pages over in John chapter 10, in verse 16. To lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Oh, how precious it is that when Jesus exercises the authority that he has as the king of all creation, he does so and lays down his life so that you might come back into the fold, back under the umbrella of God's authority and protection where there is blessing and life in its fullness. He acts with the authority of God. And when he does in a breathtaking act of power, he lays down his life for you. So the only appropriate response, then, the only one, is then for us to offer our lives back to him. To say, you can have it all. Everything, every part of it. He has been nothing but kind to you. And He's exercised His authority to take His life up again so that He can continue to be nothing but kind to you. So would you submit to Him entirely, holding nothing back today? This morning we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We do this every month to remind ourselves really of Jesus' sacrifice, that he has exercised his authority to lay his life down and take it back up again, creating then for himself a new people that belong to him, that we might live again in communion with God and with one another. And for those who believed him, he exercises his authority again and says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have not yet believed him, but who sit outside his authority, that justification is not yet yours. But this morning it could be. So would you right now, trusting Jesus, confess your resistance of whatever degree and submit your life to him and join us at the table. At the table, uh, the bread represents Jesus' body, which is broken for us. The juice represents his blood, which is shed for us. So during the next song, please make your way up to the table, receive one of the elements, return to your seat, and then in just a moment after the song, I'll get back up and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper all together. Would you please join me now as we pray? Jesus, you are the king, and we are your people you're the shepherd and we are your sheep and you have every right, every right to discard us, to forget us, but instead you draw near to us. Would you move in our hearts now, show us, really would you show us our white knuckles and pry them open with your, with your kindness that every part of our lives might be yours. Uh, Father, we rejoice in your kindness now as we sing and celebrate in your name. Amen.